Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchis, the laws of Shluchin, proxy, messengers, emissaries, the Shutafin and partnership. And just to recap, the issue here, the challenge here is there is a Torah law that says a Jew may not make a loan to a fellow Jew and take interest from him. What about an investment? So here we're learning about the basic law of an investment being half loan and half investment. The half loan comes back 100% guaranteed. The investment flexes. Now the question is, just because I am making you a loan, should you be working for the other half for free? That's the big issue. Is it not avak ribis? Is it not a taste? The dust, so to speak, of interest. And by the way, as I pointed out earlier, this is the forebearer of what morphed into heter iska, the permissibility of doing an interest-bearing loan as an investment with all the documentation necessary and so on and so forth. Up to now, we learned about cash. And now, there's a similar law to items and objects. The example here is somebody has eggs. He gives the eggs to the owner of the chicken farm, so that the chickens sit on the eggs, and the eggs will hatch, and you'll have little chickalach. Until the chicks come forth, the deal is, I give you the eggs. You have your chickens sit on them, they'll hatch, you'll raise the chicks. Why should you have your chickens sit on my eggs, and then when they hatch, why should you raise my eggs? You don't work for me. The answer is, they'll split the profits, there's going to be profits. We'll make money together, we'll get rich. What is the problem? The problem is, the guy is lending eggs to the chicken farmer. Is he getting, is he paying interest? So, the deal is, as we said earlier, where half is a loan, which he has to repay, so you evaluate it and you designate half as a loan, and the other half is an investment, which flexes. And we learned the details earlier. Just as we learned earlier, in addition to the 50-50 split, he also has to pay the chicken farmer for his work and for the food that he uses to feed the chicks. A similar law exists in a case where somebody gets an appraisal, evaluates the value of calves and ponies, and then gives them to a calf farmer or a pony farmer, a cowboy or an Indian, to raise, to occupy himself with the calves or the ponies, until they grow up, and when they grow up, boy, will we both be rich. And the profits will go 50-50 down the middle. There's a problem, because the guy is going to be making profit on the second part, which we call an investment, because I'm lending him interest-free the first part, which is a problem, because then it seems to be interest. Therefore, we learned earlier, the solution is, he has to give him some type of a payment for his daily work, even if it's a low-level payment, like an employee who sits on the bench, who gets barely something just to be there. So again, that's the same solution to the issue we learned earlier. This is a recap. If it's sounding difficult, it's because... Perhaps you did not study the earlier chapter where we went into great detail about these laws. So I recommend that you go back and deal with the last two chapters. Furthermore, he says, And he raises them, the farmer raises them, or the cowboy, the tradition is you wait until calves turn three years old. That's the time that the profit opportunity is greatest, when they hit three years old. And the donkey, until the donkey can start carrying burdens. That's when the donkey could turn a profit. One cannot sell, which means the farmer cannot sell without the consent of the investor prior to the time when the calves turn three, or the ponies begin to bear burdens. Similar law, what they used to do is they used to get an appraisal uh, to see how much an animal is worth and then place the animal to a caretaker where the caretaker, caretaker would stuff them and fatten them. This was a whole business where somebody was an excellent stuffer where he would force feed the animals and make sure they really gain weight. It's like the diametric opposite of Weight Watchers. <laughs> he also has to pay him his daily salary, at least a token salary, because otherwise it's not fair if it's a 50-50 split. We're concerned with interest bearing on the first half, which is the loan. But there's an easy solution here. If the investor said to him, I'm going to let you have the head of the animal. I'm going to let you have the tail of the animal, which are not the highest profit items, but they bring some money. Over your 50%. That's a good way, because then the guy who's working gets a little bit more for his time, so we're not worried about, in the 50-50 split, interest for the half that's a loan. 
However, as we learned earlier, what if the guy who is stuffing the animals has other animals from Afatameza, which he's also stuffing? In Zu Hashuma, I play with this newly appraised batch. Or if he had other calves or other ponies, a base of or other eggs for his chickens to sit on, Shalom. Being that he has a broader business here, he's occupying himself with his own or with someone else's. Even if he only gave him a symbolic amount during the duration of his partnership, it's enough to remove our concern with an interest bearing or somewhat interest bearing, symbolic interest bearing loan called Avakribis. And then they can feel free to split the profits. So again, to try and capsulize this in short, the concern here is that if somebody gives any of the above to someone else to stuff or raise or hatch, and the deal is we'll split the profits 50-50, our sages ordained that this should be chatsi milda, chatsi pekodin, a half loan and a half investment. We're concerned that if you're going to do half and half, the only reason the investment is going to pay half is because the loan is getting interest as well, and that's a problem. Therefore, the, the guy who does the work has to get slightly more. That's the principle here. What if he was a sharecropper of his? In other words, the one who was giving him the eggs or the calves or the ponies or what have you is the farmer. The other guy is his sharecropper. We learned earlier, what's the idea of a sharecropper? I have a farm, you harvest my farm, and you can get a third or a half of the harvest. So the sharecropper is indebted to the guy who gives him this opportunity. And now the sharecropper is working for himself as well as for the owner of the field. And so he doesn't have to give him anything extra for the above issues of eggs to hatch or ponies or what have you. What if somebody did one of the above? He either had calves appraised or ponies appraised or he placed chicken, he placed the guy's chickens on his eggs or he gave him an animal to fatten and the deal was we will split the profits 50-50. And he did not give him a little bit extra so we have the problem here with with a taste of interest which is the whole issue we're dealing with over the last many chapters. The law is the same as an investment of money which we learned about above. So we see how much the initial appraisal was how much the profit margin now is. Let's say the appraisal was 100 and the value is now 200, so there was 100 profit. So the deal calls for a split where I get my principal back, but I get another 50 and you keep 50, that's 50-50. The only solution in order to ward off the issue before is that the guy who actually worked has to get not half, but two-thirds, not 50, but 66.666. Meaning C day, and if there was a loss here, you know, not every investment makes money. Sometimes an investment loses money. It shouldn't happen like it happens. And he has to pay a third of the loss. What if there's a different situation where there's a situation where the animal that's given to the guy or the donkey that's given to the guy can work as well and eat? So they say, listen, you'll lease out my animal, you'll rent out my animal, and you'll manage my animal and we'll split the profits. Even though it's like an investment, but he's getting other income through the work of the animal. Because he gets to lease it out and keep it. And therefore it's okay. Do not appraise a calf with its mother, or a pony with its mother. Because a newborn calf or pony doesn't do anything. There is work to be done. So therefore, again, it presents a problem of interest if it's going to be a 50-50 split. That's the whole subject here. If somebody evaluates an animal for his fellow and then takes it in, to raise until there's a profit. How long does he have to occupy himself with it and care for it? What's the term? Again, if there's an agreement between them, between them any term is okay. But if there's no agreement, what's the standard term? is with donkeys, 18 months, and with a corral, which means cheaper cattle, and not saying Babakar, 24 months. So that's the deal of this investment. He gets an appraisal, he says, My investment with you of donkeys or ponies or sheep or cattle, whatever it is, is worth a thousand dollars. And let's see, 18 or 24 months later, you've taken care of it. You've taken care of my livestock. And now they should be worth a lot more because they're all grown up. We can sell them for a profit and we'll split it. That was the deal. But if they want to leave the partnership in less than 18 months or less than 24 months, the other guy can stop him. He says, wait a minute, the term is not over. Because at the end of 18 months and the end of 24 months is a high profit opportunity. Because there was an undefined term of partnership. Well, why don't we just say, well, so what? If it's supposed to be two years, now it's a year. We'll just split it. No, because the work and investment of the first year is a lot. But the profit is very little. Because the profit opportunity has not yet come. The animal is too young. Because in the first year, the animal does not get fat, does not increase in value without a lot of hard work. With Thela, whereas the occupation of working with this animal and fattening it, of the second year, she moved the work is very little because the animal is, I guess, more willing to eat, and so on. But the profit is much greater because the transformation is a much larger one. 
because he gains a lot of weight every day, the profit margin grows. That's why one partner can force the other partner to wait until the end of the second year. Well, what if the animal that was placed with the guy as an investment for the guy to raise? What if it gave birth? So now there's a baby animal, Mazel Tov. That's fine. The baby becomes part of the profit to split. The place where the custom is that the guy who raises will raise the babies as well. Let them raise it. Let it be sold in. But if there's a place where the culture is, they sell it immediately. Then what is the minimum for offspring? With a small animal like a sheep or a goat, shleishim gave thirty days. With a bigger animal, hamishim gave fifty days, and that's it. That's the minimum. And then they split the profits. What if they want to go more than the set time? Then. They have to evaluate it before three experts on the 30th or 50th day. They set a value to it. Whatever profit that will be after that setting of value, the guy who does the work will take three quarters. And the investor will take the a quarter. Because to begin with, he already owns half the baby. And now he's working for the other guys half as well. He gets half of the half, which gives him three quarters. But if they didn't make this deal in front of three, let's say a bed, you know, three, then it appears that he forgave this opportunity. And the split is down the middle. In certain places where the custom is, they also give schlepping money. This guy, he carries the small animal back and forth. Quarter money. And the money that he takes. But the investment should be in, in, in part of this quarter money. So also in a place where they, it is customary to pay money for the animal. The place where they pay money for raising these offspring. But if anybody does this without a detailed agreement, you keep the custom of the local community. Hey, Ruben, Ruben owned the field. Mr. A owned the field. And he brought Mr. B, let's call him Shimon, into his field to plant it or to plant, to sow it or to plant trees. The deal was that Mr. A says to Mr. B, listen, you spend the money. Plant, do what you have to do, and then you sell the produce. Calculate the expenses, and then anything over the expenses will split. A business. There's expenses, and then there's profits. Whether the agreement was that they split evenly, or the agreement was that Ruben, whose field it is, gets more. Whether Ruben fronted the expense money, or Shimon fronted the expense money, it's all permissible, we don't have a concern. There is no concern with shades of interest. Because landed property is considered to remain in the possession of its owner at all times, at all times, and therefore there is no lending. The Shimon on the top of the biggest artist. What about Shimon who works in the work of the land? Who buys all the and the expenses and sales? Kuanikra, there's another, there's a word for him. He's called a sharecropper. Oris. So it does not present this problem of interest. Oris, amen. Sharecropper says, I went into the deal for 50%. That's what we made up. I remember we were sitting in Starbucks and that's what we made up. But the guy who owns the field says, What are you talking about? It wasn't Starbucks, it was coffee bean. Well, the and we agreed that you get a third. Why are you talking China? Now, obviously, the tragedy here is they don't have a document. We follow the local custom. A third or a half? The one who says the agreement was different than the local custom, he has to bring proof. Here's a situation where, as we learned earlier in great detail, a husband manages his wife's property. Property she brought into the marriage, he's the manager, he gets the produce, but the actual property belongs to her. So that if the marriage comes to an end, then the property goes back to her. Now, the husband brought sharecroppers into the fields and orchards of his wife, which is what he's supposed to do. Then he divorces her. Wait a minute. If he divorced her, she gets the property back and he's nobody. In the interim, his sharecroppers are there. What are they doing there? Should they be there? Should they continue to be there? And we learned this law earlier, actually, in marriage laws. Im is the deal is, if the husband himself was a sharecropper, he was a hands-on farmer. Helvin Estalik, and he just brought his team. The guy himself does harvesting, and he brought his team. Well, the husband's gone, the team is gone. Out of here. And all they get is the portion that they reap already, and they need to take an oath to make sure they're not lying, because there's a lot of suspicion once there's a divorce, nobody believes anybody. I don't know why, but that's what I read somewhere. But if the husband is not the sharecropper, he's not the guy who does his hands-on, but he just hired a team of professionals, then they are here because that's the culture of the land, and we evaluate and treat them like a sharecropper. The final paragraph of this chapter, 7, brothers, or other heirs, who did not effect a split in the estate of their ancestor. In the interim, to date, they're all using it together. 
Then, being that they are heirs, sharing in this property or in this object, they should be treated like partners for all practical purposes. Because if the father leaves a property to five kids, then these kids, until they affect the split, are partners. Now, one of the brothers or one of the partners is taken by the government, by the king, as a special employee. He makes a lot of money. Being that he was taken, as the commentaries explain, because the king knew the father, so the money gets, is made part of the pot and they split even. But if he was taken because of him, then it's his property. That's the bottom line here. One of them got sick and then he was healed. He gets healed from the communal pot. But it was his fault that he caught cold. How could it be his fault that he catches cold? He went out in the snow, without snow gear. He went out in the heat, intense heat. And he got overcome with heat stroke. And now, in the days of heat, until he took ill, or was there in any other similar situation? And as in the that is his fault, he pays for the healing process. End of chapter 8. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchai's the laws of Shluchin, proxies, emissaries, Vishutakin, and partners. Hedek Chi'i, chapter 9. Now, the issue here is we're going to be talking about a special oath ordained by our sages whenever there's a communal pot, let's say a partnership or what have you, and there's doubt, then our sages ordain that an, an oath can be requested. One partner can tell the other partner, you take an oath, there's too much comfort here, too much convenience. I don't know. And that's a special dispensation because ordinarily an oath cannot be demanded unless there is a specific suspicion, a specific accusation. But here, because there's such a mixing of pots, our sages ordain that an oath can be required even if there's no particular accusation. So here we begin with all the Pashutuk and Kul and all the partners across the board. If there's three partners, five partners, 12 partners, or any sharecroppers. What's the idea of a sharecropper? As we said earlier, it's my field. You are in my field. You get a percentage. But you know, there's a lot of stuff that can go away. A lot of stuff that happens. Shouldn't happen like it happens. Especially if there's no video cameras. The Apitrupin, or guardians of orphans, Sheminoe Sambesin appointed by the court, Aliasim over the possessions or fields or properties of orphans. And commentaries explain that if the father of these orphans appointed this guardian before his death, that's something else. And there's a commitment. But a court appointed guardian, I don't know. A lot of Mickey Mouse stuff. Isha, or a woman who is in the family home and she does business out of the family home. And the question is, are the books straight? Or is she keeping two sets of books? You know, milk and or the husband said to her, listen, I support you as the law requires. I'm going to open up a store. I want you to be the storekeeper. Well, the question is, is she an honest storekeeper? Does everything go into the cash register? Or are there cash deals on the side? Shouldn't happen like that. You ever go into a store and see that they don't ring up what you did? They just, you know. Uh-huh. Ben Habayas and a family member, these are people who are, they have so much exposure and so much opportunity. And there's nobody really watching them. And they think they work hard, so they're entitled. They have a feeling of entitlement. Could be required to take a special oath ordained by the rabbis, by our sages, even if there's no accusation. Nobody's telling anybody they took anything, but then again, who knows? Maybe the other guy took something in business. There's a lot of business going on, there's a lot of opportunity. Maybe there wasn't real accounting, maybe there was Mickey Mouse accounting. So therefore, there's a liberal approach to an oath required. Now that Rambam lays it on the line. Why did our sages institute this oath? It's a very unusual oath. Usually oaths are only required when there's an issue, when there's an accusation. Here it's just, hey, there's been too much going on. I don't know. The answer is, because the above list, they give themselves license. They, they, they rule for themselves. Whatever they take from the investors. Money, they deserve it. What are you talking about? I'm also a boss. You know, it's like people working in an office, and they take pens and paper clips, and maybe cash, and uh, who knows? They say to themselves, they rationalize, they say, listen, I am working so hard here. I am sweating, I'm schlepping, I'm cutting, I'm mocking, I'm entitled. Because they're obligated to take this oath, even if nobody is certain of any possible wrongdoing. They're just too much comfort. Our sages ordained this to encourage the people to begin with to act honestly and not to get too comfortable with somebody else's money. Because the human spirit is a human being that's comfortable. There's an old famous Talmudic saying, if somebody wants to lose money, he should purchase a business, hire employees, not supervise them, not be there. He's guaranteed to lose money. Why? Why? Because it's human nature. Bays. None of the above could be forced to swear with this type of 
accusation an indefinite claim until there was a suspicion that they took a minimum amount of two silver pieces. Two silver more, as will be explained, a more is one sixth of a dinar or equivalent to 32 prutas. So there has to be a minimum somewhat suspicion. But if the suspicion is less than that, even this oath cannot be pushed. So if you're just concerned about a few paper clips, don't push the envelope. Now he says, based upon this rule, says the Rambam, my teachers, the Rimigosh and the Rif, the Rambam's teachers, ruled that if one partner dies, the heirs of the estate cannot come to the partner. I say, hey, you got to swear. I don't know what you did, but all I know is I want you to take an oath. And in general, people would take oaths very seriously. So the oath would cause a person to be on the straight and narrow. Because the heir is not certain that his father had any suspicions. That he suspects that there was an issue of the minimum of two silver pieces. And in this case, the heir could require him because he's not sure, maybe. And the Ramam says, I prefer this interpretation. Because it's proper for heirs to require the widow who became a guardian during the lifetime of her husband to take an oath. That is acceptable. Therefore, why should this be any different? The, the law, as we've talked about extensively, is that the husband's estate, when he passes away, has to support the wife has to support the daughters. There's a whole system we learned about, but the heirs are the sons. So therefore, if the wife has been caring for the husband's estate because he was unable to care for it himself or what have you, and the heirs, and again, these heirs could be children from different wives or what have you, are suspicious that she made off with some of the money. How much money had they made off, made off with? We don't know. Therefore, there could be the appropriateness of an oath here as well. Now, the Napa even though there are no clear witnesses that say that this guy is a sharecropper. There are no clear witnesses that say that this guy is a partner. Mr. X comes and says, I'm a sharecropper. I'm a partner. But he just comes and declares and says, I am the partner. I am the sharecropper. I am the family member who had access, comings and goings. But I represent to you that I didn't take anything. Now, here's a unique situation. Ordinarily, we would say that the rabbinic ordinance of Migu would apply. What is Migu? Migu is an Aramaic word. If he wanted to lie, he didn't have to come and say anything to begin with because nobody knew that he was involved. The fact that he did say means he's honest. So let's believe him. That's the ordinary statement of Migu. Still in this case, he should be required to take an oath holding a holy object. Because a migui can only be used for the argument never to exempt someone from an oath. A migui can exempt somebody from money, from payment, never from oath. Who is considered a ben bias, a member of the household, so to speak, who could take an oath in an argument of uncertainty? Who is considered this household person? A household manager, for example. The guy who has the authority to hire and fire workers. He's a manager. He hires people and fires people. This guy has a lot of access. He takes produce in, he takes produce out, he takes inventory. He's got a lot of opportunity. But a household member who's not in charge. He just has access, he comes and goes with his feet. But he's not in charge of hiring and firing or produce inventory, what have you. And this guy could not be made to swear when there is no specific accusation. So also the estate manager mentioned before, Shemino appointed not by the court as before, but the father before he died appointed him. The orphans cannot cause him to take a note because they're suspicious that he's cutting in on the turf. He's taking stuff. So also a woman who was widowed, she was not managing the husband's estate during her husband's lifetime, so she didn't have opportunity. If she was managing the estate, is one thing. Again, we're concerned with the heirs, who are the orphans, they are the heirs. She did not manage the estate after burial as well. There's no reason to make her take an oath. Even if she did manage between death and burial, we don't cause an oath to be taken for this, because it's a very short period. Because if the word gets out that she will be required to take an oath after her husband dies, before burial, for any financial stuff that she did, like Tim Kulikfura, she'll never feel comfortable selling anything to get enough money to buy a plot and to bury. So the guy is just going to remain rotting, God forbid. The corpse is going to become loathsome. You know, they had no refrigeration in the morgues. So therefore, a woman has to feel comfortable to sell something, to buy a burial plot, to see to it that her husband is buried, without her, the, the heirs coming and making her take oats. Because in that case, you're going to say, I don't need this. Uh, hey, five. What if somebody sends his fellow with an object to sell? He says, do me a favor. Go take this and sell it for me. 
doesn't mean that you can keep me taking oats. There's no doubt here. There's no issue remaining. Also, if the partnership remained with money in the pot, the partnership has money. They dissolved the partnership, but there's still a million dollars in the pot. It was not paid out yet, but, but dissolved. It's all there. It's all known. But it was not yet distributed. There's no issue. They can no longer cause each other to take oats. In other words, the subject of this chapter is what is the substance that can have one partner or one person cause the other to take an oath. Here we're talking about it's been dissolved, it's over. I'm sorry. Because the monies, even though they're in the partnership, are like distributed, they just have to be distributed, but there's no issue of who owns what. So also, if they did a financial analysis of the whole partnership, they did an audit. And they found out that Mr. A still owes Mr. B X amount of dollars. That's fine. Even though it wasn't dispersed yet, it wasn't distributed, but it's clear. It's still considered a division. There are no remaining issues. You all the guy money, pay him. But on the other hand, in Nisha, there was some produce left. Well, produce is not money. Money is definitive. Produce is undetermined. The produce was not yet divided, so there's just a bunch of produce in the partnership. And the weight is not even clear to say everybody knows how much a pound of peaches goes for. And there's 100 pounds of peaches. Well, we don't know what a pound of peaches goes for. Are you shopping in the Persian market? Are you shopping in Ralph's? Are you shopping in Yeltsin's? Where are you shopping? There's still some type of commonality of partnership here. Which has not yet been calculated. Nobody clearly knows how much they each get. Bottom line is, the partnership is still alive and well. And therefore, if there's an issue, as outlined above, they can cause each other to swear. Test 9, the closing paragraph of this chapter. Somebody made a definitive demand from his fellow after the partnership had been dissolved and distribution had been made. And he still wakes up one day and he says, I don't, I don't know, I have some suspicion. Something is bothering me. The only way you can cause the other guy to swear is to a Gilgal. If he has another issue with him, one could bring in, lead into the other. That's called the Gilgal, the additional. Can I should be honest with you explain? Ah, well, but if a person has a suspicion, even though he can't cause an oath to be taken, yes, like the he can go to the courts and ask them to issue a ban of excommunication, which we talked about in great detail earlier. Against anyone who robbed him, when he was his partner, or had, he was a household member, anybody who does not confess and admit what he stole should be excommunicated. That is a lot easier to effect than an oath. End of chapter 9. Rambam. Mishnah Torah, Hilcha is the laws of Shluchin, proxies, messengers, emissaries, Vishutafim, and partners. And this would be the last chapter of this section. We conclude this section today, Perak Yud, chapter 10. Just to give a little bit of a recap introduction. We know that by Torah law, if somebody claims that somebody else owes them money, for whatever reason, and the other person says, I only owe you half, that's called Modeb Amixas. He admits to a partial obligation. It's within the framework of that demand. By Torah law, he has to take an oath that says, I don't owe you 100, I owe you 50. But if somebody says, I don't know who you are, I never met you, I don't know you anything, that's called a kofer hakol, he denies everything. There's no law required by Torah requiring him to take an oath, because he never admitted to anything. There's no relationship between them. Somebody comes over to somebody in the street and says, you owe me money. He says, have a good day, I don't know you anything. Rabbinic law, however, ordained the very broad concept of a shvuas, heses. The word is a word based in the Talmud. It refers to a rabbinic oath, a much lighter form of oath, where when people have disputes and issues between them, the sages recommended a rabbinic oath. In the earlier chapter, I believe it was chapter 9, we learned about another type of oath, and that is Shavuas Shutafim, an oath of partners, that when there is a partnership or there is any type of relationship, you could have a person who is a manager of somebody's estate, you could have a guardian of orphans, the whole list that we enumerated in chapter 9 of situations where there's no clear issue, however, there was a lot of opportunity and a lot of feelings of entitlement. So there's a, a, an oath which we refer to as Shavuas Shutfim, a partner's oath. And that is that even though there is no definite demand, still there's a lot going on there that could require clarification. However, we learned that the issue at hand must be at least two mo'a, at least two silver coins. It has to be a substantial suspicion. It can't be trivial. And this is called the shvuas ha-shutfim. So these are three types of oaths that we talk about in general terms. The biblical oath, 
An example of that was Moda the Mixos, one who admits to part of the claim. Another example of the biblical oath is Shuat Hashomrim, the oath of guardians, where somebody is watching, guarding somebody's object, and comes back and he says, where is it? He says it was lost or stolen. He has to take an oath saying, I didn't touch it. And of course, there are various types of watchmen. There's Shomer Chinam, one who does it for nothing, Shomer Sachar, one who gets paid for it. The obligations are more severe as we go on and so on. So this is some background as to help us understand chapter 10. Chapter 10, Aleph 1, Shutaf, a partner. Remember, we talked about the partner's oath. Shetoan al-Chaveda, he has a claim against his fellow. Shekach, oyot that there was a, an agreement, a condition, a stipulation in their partnership. Ba'alo Omer, and Omer, and the other guy says, lo, oyot this condition never existed. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're smoking. It never happened. That's one case. Hey, or similarly, another case, Shetoan, where the guy claims, the plaintiff claims, my principal that I invested with you was so-and-so. And the other guy says, never happened. Never was what you claimed. It was a lot less. Again, there was a partnership where one guy says there was a $1,000 investment. The other guy says, what are you talking about? Never happened. There was an investment, but it was $500. Or he claims, the plaintiff claims, I'm sorry, the defendant claims, I already gave you that which I had to to close out our partnership. And the other one says, I didn't take anything from you. That's a very common thing. I gave it. I never took it. Or the fellow says, this merchandise was mine to begin with. It was always mine. And the other guy says, no, Michel Emtzai, it was from the partnership. Any type of claims of this type, where the guy says there was, and the other guy says there wasn't, then the litigant has a right to demand that the defendant, the plaintiff has a right to demand that the defendant take an oath. Because these are disagreements. Ketzad, for example. If the plaintiff does not want his partner to take an oath of partners, the rather he chooses to have him take a heses, which is a rabbinic oath, and he says, because he says it never happened, he can cause him to take that oath, because that's what rabbinic law requires. What's the advantage? If he desires, if he desires to have him take an oath of partners, he can do what's called Gilbushwood, which we learned about in chapter 9. He can cause the other guy to, to extend his oath, and by the way, I didn't do this, and I didn't do this, and include other scenarios. If he can have him take an oath even when the claim is of uncertainty, for example, he can also have him take an oath that during the entire duration of the partnership he didn't steal anything. And there was between us this and this condition. And this is your merchandise. And you gave me so and so. Is there anything similar? So there is an option in all of the above situations. If somebody demands that his partner take an oath of an oath of partnership, which we talked about in the earlier chapter, which is he's entitled to require an oath of partnership if there's a partnership. However, the defendant says, what are you talking about? We already made a division in this partnership and it's over. We closed out the partnership. You have nothing left with me. So there is no partnership. How could there be an oath of partnership when there's no longer a partnership? And the plaintiff argues and says, we did not yet divide. We did not yet audit the partnership and close it out. That's one example. Or the plaintiff says, we divided the partnership, we separated. But I stipulated that any time I can come to you and demand that you take the oath of partners. And you didn't do it yet. Every time I come to you and tell you, I want you to take the oath. Swearing that what you're saying is so, you push me day to day. You tell me tomorrow, tomorrow. He cannot cause him to swear with this type of oath. Even if the defendant says, yes, we divided. And there was something left. But whatever is left from the partnership, I accept it upon myself. I owe you $100. And now I have a debt to you of $100. Partnership is over, but we have $100 outstanding. You ask me to keep an eye on this $100, but there is no living partnership. Even though he brings witnesses that there was a partnership. He can't make him take this oath in a situation of doubt. That's what this partnership type oath is called. He also can't cause him to take a regular rabbinic. That they already divided. They were never partners. Even by causing another 
oath to roll into the first oath. The reason, because we don't do this type of rabbinic oath, and we don't cause one oath to roll into another, unless the claim was something, where if he would admit to the claim, and he would have to pay money. But in our case, it's something, even if he admitted, the most he would have to do is take an oath. Therefore, you can't force someone to take an oath if the most they would have to do if they admitted it to take an oath. Even through one oath, rolling into another. And this was the rule of the masters of halacha. What if the plaintiff argues and says, you're still my partner, and you have this and this of the partnership. And the defendant says, we've already divided and closed off our partnership, closed out our partnership. There's nothing of yours left with me. That's one type of claim the defendant can make. Or, or the defendant makes an even better claim. He says, you were never my partner. I don't know what you're talking about. The, the defendant is caused to swear a rabbinic type oath called Hesses. Shane Levy, the claim that he has nothing. Then once the Hesses is here, once the rabbinic oath is invoked, he can also roll another oath into it. By the way, take a note that you never robbed anything from me. But he cannot roll into the first oath another oath. That you were never my partner. Because if he would confess, there would be no obligation. If the guy argued, you're still my partner. Therefore, I can make you take an oath of partnership. The other one says, we were never partners. The plaintiff then brings witnesses that says, that say, you were a partner. You were his partner. Well, once the defendant says, sees there are witnesses saying that they were partners, he changes his claim. And he says, you know what, we were partners. But we closed out our partnership. This is already lies. You were never my partner. There's witnesses. Okay, you were my partner, but we closed it out. Ain't shaming We don't listen to his claims. Because for the matters dealing with this oath requirement, the guy has been designated as a liar. So therefore, he has no credibility. Yet he still, say the commentaries, has enough credibility where we'll trust his oath, because people take oaths very seriously. He will be required to take the partner's oath defined in chapter 9. Anything similar. Hey is an interesting scenario. This is a partnership. Mr. A, Ruben, put 400 dinars, let's say $400, into the pot. And Shimon put half. 200 dinars. Now we learned earlier that in many situations, despite the fact that a person, one person puts in a larger amount and another person puts in a smaller amount, the division is 50-50 because one invests more experience, more work, or what have you. When they became full partners, 50-50 partners, even though the investment was lopsided. And then together they did business, which is why they are 50-50 partners. Although Ruben has the money, Mr. A has all the money, how much money does he have? 600, 400 plus 2. And then Ruben, who's Mr. Money, comes along and argues, they said, we had some bad reversals. This partnership lost 500 of the 600 of the partnership. We lost $500. Now, if it's a 50-50 partnership, well, let's see. If it's a 50-50 partnership and there was a $500 or dinar loss, each should suffer half of that, which is 250. 250 is half of 500. We should not say, we should not say that Mr. A. Ruben should take an oath that there was a 500 dinar loss. How does Mr. B, Shimon, lose 250 when he only put in 200? The answer is he has to go home and add 50. He only put in 200. Now he has to add another 50. So, says the Rambam, we do not say that. Even though we did say earlier that it should be a 50-50 partnership. But this is a bit much. Because this guy put in 400, the other guy put in 200. Ruben should take an oath of partners. That there was a loss. The money should be other, but he should be very happy walking away with 100. We do not require Shimon to pay anything. Next scenario. Tohan Ruben, what if Ruben claims, Reuben says, listen, my partner here, Shimon, he knows very well that there was a loss of 500. He was involved, and he should take responsibility. And he can compel him to include that he does not have knowledge of this in his oath. However, another scenario. What if Shimon did not engage in the partnership activity at all? He was only an investor. Shimon has that Shimon could swear a rabbinic oath. I have said that he has no certain knowledge of this. Loss of the he can walk. If this hundred which was left, was left not in Ruben's hands, but in Shimon's hands. In certain situations, they could be forced to divide 150 each. Because a partner is not those who swear and take in order that he should swear and take what's in the other guy's hand. Generally speaking, the partner swears and is exempt of the claim. Or he could 
have the responsibility to assume ownership of that which is his. Says the Rambam, these have been meticulous in the application of this law. It's complex. Because many masters of halacha have erred in this rule. Six, the closing paragraph of this chapter. What if Shimon is to be argued? There are two partners. One is Reuben, Mr. A, and one is Shimon. Along comes Shimon and argues that Levi, a third party, has a collectible debt from this partnership. Something that Reuben says I'm not aware of. If Shimon has enough to pay the debt, and he's able to give it from the money of the partnership now when he's relied upon. And Shimon gives the debt to Levi of the hundred. And then they recalculate. And they audit. Which means it's an acceptable claim to the partnership. Here's a partner who says the partnership has an obligation to a third party. He has the money in the, in the pot. Pay it. Maybe the other day, and what if he does not have the money in the partnership pot? The partnership account is empty. He's not relied upon sufficiently to force partner A, Ruvain, to come up with the money. Or from the merchandise known to belong to the partnership, Ruvain should not be forced to come up with money or take it out of the merchandise. Why? Here's an interesting statement that Rambam makes, which is very common in Talmudic argument. Maybe they created a knunya. What's a knunya? A knunya is they came up with a story. Shimon and Levi came up with a false story, saying, hey, Levi, you put in a claim to the partnership, I'll pay, and we'll have a happy day. Meaning, that being that Shimon and Levi are two people who are trying to collect from funds that are Rubens, that's a problem. You need proof more than his word. We suspect a knunya, we suspect an illegitimate deal, a behind-the-scenes deal. Even if they come up with a supportive document supporting this loan, and Reuben Chayev Lashal, the Reuben is not obligated. Reuben had no knowledge of it. There was no declaration made. This is like a ninth inning thing they spring up. However, what if Shimon argued? Reuben knew all along this debt existed. I, I, I had full disclosure. I let him know. This is our debt. That's a different argument. Then Reuben can be forced to take a rabbinic oath. Or to roll another oath into it. That he has no knowledge of the partnership having this debt. In that case, Shimon, Mr. B, should pay from his own funds. So also, if a document of debt was issued by in the name of Shimon, the mayor is demanding a hundred dinars from the from the partnership money. Levi comes. Levi owes the partnership a hundred dinar. And Shimon says, Shimon, if Rati, I was repaid. And I restored it to the coffers of the partnership. Oh, yes, but I gave him an extension for a year or two. Ain't not believe. Maybe they are ganging up together and creating a story just to obtain Reuben's property. So the case of Zahari rule, once Shimon makes that declaration that he paid me, or I gave an extension, then Levi's out of the picture for now. If Shimon doesn't bring proof, Shimon has to pay, and Reuben cannot be made to pay. And if the year or two goes by, he should demand it from Levi, but Reuben is exempt. Any similar situation, and the Rambam says that this is the end of the laws of proxies, agents, and partners. Baruch Hashem.